The mind by nature is radiant and pure, the Buddha said. It is shining. It is because of visiting forces known as defilements that we suffer. It is because of visiting forces known as defilements that we suffer. In our aspiration to awaken, to live in the present moment, to be aware of the way things are deeply, we are going to meet these defilements. Whenever you feel distressed in any way, with some gross suffering of emotional turmoil, or some very subtle discontentment, boredom, disinterest, irritation, you can be sure that one of these visitors has appeared in the mind. And so we could say that the defilements are part of the Dharma. We should not reject them, but rather we should accept in the sense of acknowledge them. If we resist, avoid, deny, minimize, we're just putting off the inevitable. We have to learn how to identify and work with these difficult and challenging states of mind, which cause us to suffer. Before I go too far, let me identify some of these defilements. When you feel sleepy and disinterested in practice, that's a defiled state of mind. When you're sitting in the 40 minutes into the sitting and you're wondering, why isn't he ringing the bell yet? That's a defiled state of mind. When you're anticipating what you're gonna be doing at the end of the retreat, that's a defiled state of mind. When you're just aimlessly, restlessly wandering around, either physically, the building, or mentally, in the mind, that's a defiled state of mind. When you see someone going through the food line and you're commenting to yourself, geez, they're taking a lot, or can't they hurry up, or they're not taking very much, or I like the way they take what they take. All of those are <laughs> defiled states of mind. So I'm sure you've seen some of these visitors today. Let's now just kind of jump to the, how we're going to work with them. They're, the defilements are... tricky because we believe them. When our mind says, gosh, I'm really tired, I need to take a nap, we believe that. Or when we see somebody and we have a kind of a, a whiny, irritated kind of judgment of them, we believe that judgment. They really are walking too slow. 
Or when we imagine, gosh, that was a pretty thin gruel for tea. Maybe I ought to go to town and get a steak sub. Mm. You know, we believe that. Or when we you know, are struggling with some knee pain or back pain or something 30 minutes into the sitting, we think, I can't do this practice. I'm a failure. We actually believe that thought. And because we believe it, because we identify with it, because we have no objective knowledge of it, we just have the subjective indulgence in it, we don't see it. This is the problem. We are so habituated to this kind of thinking that we take it for granted. We've taken it for granted for so long, we no longer see it. It just becomes the kind of the, the stream of consciousness that's kind of running in the background of our mind. And we believe it. That's what causes us to suffer. Learning to recognize these defiled states of mind is, is the first step. Until we can just, you know, recognize this is, this is really a bother. This is really irritating. This is, this is desire. This is sleepiness. This is restlessness. This is boredom, frustration, despair, disappointment, angst, stress, jealousy, pride. Uh, this is just the, the big topics. The little topics are endless. They're so deeply conditioned that they have become our default setting, our personality, who we think we really are. And so learning to recognize them is the first step. How do we do that? By paying attention. By paying attention to our moment-to-moment experience, we will begin to recognize Breath is being known, sounds being known, sensations being known, irritation being known. There it is. Desire being known, sleepiness being known, restlessness being known, doubt being known, fear being known, irritation, judgment being known. And already we begin to kind of step back from our total enmeshed involvement in them. We've gotten, we've gotten a little recognition of them. So learning to recognize is the first step in working with any of these defiled states of mind. The second step is to exercise some restraint and not act them out. That means you don't go to town for that steak sub and you don't write that note to the person that's bothering you. And you don't take every nap you think you should. Because in the acting out of these states of mind, we actually are avoiding them. We're avoiding looking at them, feeling them, dealing with them. We're just acting them out. We're dumping them on somebody else. We're just kind of keeping one step ahead of them so that we don't have to actually Heal them. So we exercise some restraint. We just say, okay, wait. I know this is a very powerful thought, powerful emotion. 
I really do want to do, say, or don't do, don't say. But in the protection of this, the container of this retreat, you have every permission not to act them out. The third step in working with any of these defiled states of mind, once you recognize them and you know that, okay, this is, this is my challenge now. This is the, this is the task at hand. I've got to deal with this emotional drama, this emotional state of mind, this whatever it is. We recognize it. We exercise some restraint. The third, and it's not an insignificant step, it's a really important piece, is to reframe your understanding. Normally we think these kinds of experiences are bad meditation. I'm not succeeding if I see these states of mind. I'm a failure. I've got to get rid of them. That's another defiled state of mind. I've got to get rid of them. Aversion. So we need to reframe our understanding of what to do here. What, what's the nature of practice in this situation? We've recognized this defiled state of mind. We've exercised some restraint. And now we're just kind of opening, the, opening our mind to kind of feel it. If we can approach the defilements with an attitude of what can I understand about the nature of anger? What can I understand or what can I observe and learn about the nature of sleepiness? What can I understand or know about desire or pride or any of the other states of mind that come and torment us? Many of you were reporting and have asked questions about sleepiness. All of us have experienced a lot of sleepiness, not only in practice, in our life. What do we actually know about the experience of sleepiness? What can we say? I mean, how does your body feel? What is, what's going on in your mind? How long does it last? It's just, could we write a paragraph about we have, what we have actually observed about the experience of sleepiness. Most of us could not. Most of us would be hard-pressed to make one coherent sentence about sleepiness, and yet we've all experienced hour upon hour upon hour of sleepiness. But we've experienced it from the place of being identified with it. I'm so tired. Rather than being mindful of it as what can I learn about this experience? I'm just going to watch, see, observe, feel what sleepiness is, does, feels like in the mind, in the body. And so we want to, I say engage, we want to engage it with our attention. And for most, for most of us that means recognizing it, naming it, knowing that we're going to open our heart, open our mind to feel the state of mind. Every one of them is unpleasant. 
And so we have to understand that when we undertake the path of awakening, comfort cannot be the goal. If comfort's your goal, you just will not approach these defiled states of mind in a way that you can learn anything about them. Because as soon as you get a little irritated or angry or frustrated or pride or judgment, you just, you don't want to go there. You'd rather act it out. I mean, you, me, we all would rather just act it out and get rid of it. File it away in the self-righteous category of our mind. Just like, I should be angry. They're so, and I'm so, therefore, okay, file that one. So we recognize, we exercise some restraint, we reframe our understanding that this experience is the very place to practice awareness, to develop our awareness, to train ourselves to observe in order to learn, not in order to get rid of. If you think being sleepy is a problem, your aversion is the problem. If you think being restless, can't sit still, is a problem, your aversion to that experience, that's the problem. If you're trying to get rid of something, that desire, that's the problem. Restlessness, observe it. Aversion, observe it. Sleepiness, observe it. If you don't like it, that's the problem. And so we need to reframe our understanding that these experiences are the very place that we learn. In fact, we can usually, often, often, usually, usually, usually learn more from a difficult experience than an easy one. Because we learn about ourselves, we learn about our buttons, we learn about our sensitivity, we learn about our, the limits of our courage, willingness to endure discomfort. We learn about ourselves, how easily we succumb to these states of mind. So we recognize them, we exercise some restraint, we begin to reframe our understanding so that we, so that we have the right attitude in our practice. And the attitude is we observe the present moment experience of the mind and the body in order to understand the nature of physical experience, mental experience. Now, lest you think your anger is your anger, the anger you experience is no different than the anger I experience. The jealousy you experience, no different than the jealousy I experience. It's not particular to you. Yeah, there's a content and there's a story, but the feeling that comes that is so deeply conditioned, no different for you than anyone else in the room. And while we can say, that's not yours, that's not who you are, there's nothing personal to it, you are responsible for it. You have to deal with it. And it's in that learning to open to, understand, you know, how to, to resist the, the, the kind of the pull, the identification with them. That's where wisdom grows. We could say, 
our work with the defilements are the stepping stones to wisdom. The more you engage your defilements, the wiser you'll become. Recognize, exercise restraint, reframe your understanding. This next piece. Open your heart, open your mind to receive the experience. Receive it. That means accept it. It's here, accept it. Don't just kind of resist it, keeping it on the periphery saying, okay, I'll tolerate you till you go away. It's just, there it is. Receive it. That means allow yourself to feel what it actually feels like. There's a huge difference between being angry, thinking about your anger, and being mindful of anger. When you're angry, yeah, you feel it, but you have no... You feel it from this total immersion in it. Not from the mindful awareness of it. And when you're thinking about your anger, mostly we're justifying it. Going over the same old story, repeating the same old justification, and reinforcing the anger. Being mindful of anger means to step out of the story, open to feel what it feels like in the body. Watch what it does to your mind. The thoughts that come with anger, how do they make you feel? How do they react when they touch the body? That's what receiving the nature of anger, receiving the nature of fear, receiving the nature of judgment, receiving the nature of cynicism, criticism. There are subtle, receiving the nature of boredom. One, one instruction that is really helpful in this step, this fourth step of working with the defilements, is to heighten your sense or develop your sense of curiosity. Get curious. We've all experienced fear. We've all experienced jealousy. We've all experienced despair. It's not a secret. You know, none of us are immune or exempt from them, no matter how hard we try or how spiritual we are. They come. Given conditions, they come. What do we know about them? What do we know about any one of them? Do we have the courage? Can we arouse the courage, which is really just willingness, to open to and feel them? That's what it takes. Courage. Not the macho courage of, I'm going to defeat it, but the very sensitive courage that's, that's willing to feel intimately what these states of mind feel like. And when we do, we see this is the nature of whatever it is we're observing. This is how it is. And when you know that about yourself, you know that about everyone else. Because it's the same. 
how I experience any of these states of mind is not so different than how you'll experience them, though the content may be different or will be different. But when we open to it and we become mindful of it, we see what it does. Recognize them, exercise some restraint, don't act them out. Reframe your understanding. This is not a problem as long as we open to it, accept it, acknowledge it, and work with it. It's a very place to develop wisdom. Open to it to receive the nature of it. And the fifth step is to realize their inherent characteristic. They don't last very long. Somewhere today, you felt frustrated, or sleepy, or restless, or you were just kind of consumed with desire for something that you didn't have. Where is it now? It's gone. It, it didn't last very long. Part of the challenge of our aspiration to awaken is to have the courage to outlast these unpleasant experiences. They don't last. But we have to engage them, open to them, feel them, know them when they arise for as long as they last, and if we do, we'll see when they come to an end. So this is a five-step process. Recognize, exercise restraint, reframe our understanding, receive their nature, and realize their inherent characteristic. If we refuse to acknowledge them, we only strengthen them. They like nothing better than to be denied, avoided, resisted, minimized, or, or, or acted out. Because with any of them, that only strengthens the habit in the mind. To weaken them, we just watch. We just observe. And the identification with them thins out. Not only that, but we become so intimately attuned to how they manifest in the body and in the mind that we catch them much quicker when they arise again. And when we do that, they don't last as long. This is the way to the end of suffering. By becoming so intimately familiar that we catch them as soon as they start to bubble up in the mind. We recognize them and we know confidently that we can endure them as long as they last. Which is not long, we also know. That's where true freedom comes. Not being afraid of unpleasant states of mind. Not having to manipulate our lives. Not having to strategize 
how to avoid situations that are unpleasant, how to only seek after those which are pleasant. This is true freedom. The teacher I've been working with most recently in Burma said, most yogis make the mistake of expecting good experiences instead of trying to work with the defilements. Most yogis make the mistake of expecting good experiences or even wanting them instead of being willing to engage the defilements. Am I speaking for any of us? Okay, so now let's get down to the brass tacks. Sloth and torpor. Well, let's get down to the soft bed. Sloth and torpor. Okay, so how do we work with sloth and torpor? Well, you've all had it today, I'm sure. But we recognize it, we recognize sloth because sloth is, it's that very unwillingness. You know, when you're just unwilling to engage the present moment. For whatever reason, you know, you ate too much, the body's kind of painful, the mind is restless, you know, whatever. That unwillingness is laziness. That's slothfulness in the mind. One way to reflectively remind yourself how to work with sloth, remember why you came here. It wasn't just to take a, a holiday, I hope. I know somebody here did think that they were just coming to kind of like a, you know, kind of summer camp or something. Well, that's the way it was for me when I went on my first retreat. I didn't know where I was going or what I was. I thought I was going on a holiday. But nevertheless, I'm sure none of you are doing that. But the time here is short. We don't have a lot of time. And I don't mean here on the retreat. I mean in this very life. We have deeply conditioned habits in our mind. How can we work with them? How free can we become of them in this lifetime? That's our challenge. For those who've, who've consciously accepted the uh, aspiration to awaken, this is our challenge. To make best use of our time in order to overcome and uproot these defilements that cause us suffering, these visitors that come to the mind. Carlos Castaneda had a great teacher, Don Juan. And Carlos, in his own way, after the passing of Don Juan, became quite a good teacher. And I read an article recently about an... Uh, uh, a journalist who had always wanted to meet Carlos and many people knew that he had wanted to meet or wanted to meet Carlos and he got a call one day that said Carlos would be having dinner with a group of friends in a certain restaurant at a certain time this is in San Rafael where he lived and uh, if he went he could he could meet Carlos so he went and he got there and there was you know, half a dozen people sitting around the table one of them was that kind of short kind of kind of pudgy, balding guy that smoked a lot, named Carlos Castaneda. And um, in the course of the discussion that evening, 
There was a woman who asked, Carlos said, you know, I've always wanted to live a more spiritual life and uh, I just, you know, uh, I'm, I'm just not sure how to do that. What, what, would you, uh, what would you recommend? And if you've read any of the books, you know that you might imagine that he would say, you know, go to the uh, Sonoran Desert, find yourself a strange-looking Yaqui Indian, take a lot of uh, hallucinogenic mushrooms and peyote and cactus buttons and things like that, and you'll have a spiritual life. But he didn't say that. He said, if you want a spiritual life, every morning before you get out of bed, remember and reflect and consider that everybody you meet today is going to die. And let that be the guide as to how you will treat them. Your life will become spiritual quickly. So when you feel bored, when you feel lazy, when you feel like you just don't want to bother going to another sitting, you just don't want to pay attention, remember, your life too is very brief. And the work that needs to be done is immense. Torpor, akin to sloth, is not laziness, but it's that sluggishness of mind, the heaviness of mind, the... Uh, the density of the mind, when even if you felt like you were willing, you just can't get the mind to respond. It's like cold clay. You know when you want to work with clay, and you pick up the clay, and it's been out in the shed, and it's just kind of like almost as hard as a rock? <laughs> you know, you, you just can't work it. It is just too cold. It's too dense. It's too hard. Sometimes the mind gets like that. It's just too dense. It's too thick. It's too sluggish. Well, how are we going to warm up the mind like we warm up clay so that it becomes pliable and, and it can be moved and malleable and it can adapt to whatever form you want to make it adapt to? How do we work the mind in order to make it pliable and light and flexible, heat it up? if you will. Well, one way that Mahasi Sayadar, who, is, who was a Burmese monk of the last century that in the tradition that we teach in, one way that he said to warm up the mind is to arouse spiritual cheerfulness, which is called pamuja. And then he gave a couple of examples of, of how you might do that. One is to reflect on the suffering in hell. <laughs> right, right. Reflect on the suffering in hell, that'll make you happy. Hmm. Now, how, what does he mean by that? I mean, only a Burmese Sayadaw could say, you want to be happy? Reflect on hell. Okay, well, think about it. We're not living in a hellish condition. We are reasonably healthy. We are immensely wealthy. We have the free time to be here. We can live in harmony amongst ourselves somewhat. That is not a hellish condition. The hellish condition is you don't have that. You're just suffering all the time, tormented by your own mind. Whether hell is an actual place or hell is a mental state, you're not there. Count your blessings. 
Let that be something that brightens your mind, just to count your blessings that we can be awake. We have heard the Dharma. We do have the aspiration to awaken. We have the opportunity. We have the free time. We have the funds. We have the teacher. We have the place. The only thing that's missing is the willingness. Let that be the source or the inspiration for your willingness. But even then, reflecting on death, reflecting on the good conditions that we have in this life, sometimes sloth and torpor are just intractable. Well, don't forget the mm, direct antidotes. Stand up if you're sitting. Open your eyes. Walk faster during a walking practice. Rub your limbs. Take a cold shower. Well, take a warm shower today followed by a cold rinse. Uh, don't, don't eat so much, don't sleep so much. All of these are kind of mechanical antidotes to sleepiness. Wake up. Stand up. Keep yourself awake. If you're really sitting and you're just nodding off, sit uncomfortably. And there was a time in Burma when I was practicing that I just had some sloth and torpor that just was intractable. But I wouldn't give up, so I would sit on my feet in such a way that they were painful. I mean, most of us aren't looking for pain, but it does keep you awake. No one succeeds without effort, Ramana Maharshi said. Mind at peace is not your birthright. Those who succeed owe their liberation to perseverance. It is the perseverance to just be willing to connect once again. Identify, this is sleepiness, open to observe it energetically. Again and again and again and again and again. It's that persistence, perseverance, that just keeps engaging the mind. It's like that cold clay. You just keep, you just keep trying to work it a little bit, you know, around the edges. And, and you know, even though it seems impossible the first time you, the first squeeze you do, you know, after a short while, the clay is workable. Same with the mind that's sluggish or lazy. It seems unworkable until you actually engage it. Once you engage it, it'll come alive. It'll warm up. It'll do the work. Second major category of hindrance or defilement is doubt. Doubt is it's like a chameleon. It can masquerade as confidence. We do a lot of thinking and reflecting and considering and comparing this teacher with that teacher and this technique with that technique and this tradition with that tradition. And we're really just kind of we're, we're figuring it out. We're going to get confidence here as soon as we figure it out. You can never figure it out. You can only practice to know for yourself. That kind of speculative ruminating, I've got to read one more book before I'll know for sure. That kind of uh, wisdom that's acquired through reflective thinking, in the Pali language, it's called 
Takahitu, takahitu. It's the the knowledge and the understanding that comes from, you know, thinking. The root of that word comes from the word from the word doubt. Not possible, not possible to arrive at confidence through thinking, but only through practice. And so, if you have thoughts like, I wonder if this is the practice for me. Maybe I shouldn't do a nine-day retreat. Maybe I should have done a weekend. Maybe I should go, yeah, a weekend. Maybe I should do a meta retreat. You know, I'm, I, I like yoga. Maybe I should just go do yoga instead. I hear there's a good one out there. You know what? Down at the study center, they're having a jhana retreat. That's it. I'll go do the jhana retreat because I know jhanas are really good. You know, or maybe it's not other practices. Maybe it's yourself. I don't know if I can do this. None of us know if we can do it, really. But we can't let that stop us, because we're not going to know until we do it. I remember the first time I came on staff here in... Uh, I came in 77. I came on staff early 78. Now, mind you, I had done one two-week retreat. I came on staff. One of the first days on staff, I was up in the uh, Catskills attic, putting insulation in the ceiling with uh, another person on staff, who Rodney Smith, who's now a teacher out in Seattle. And we were having a discussion about the Dharma, and I said to him, I have absolutely no doubt that I will realize the Dharma in this lifetime. <laughs> I had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> but I didn't have any doubt. I found out in my practice, but I didn't have any doubt about my aspiration. That's what I meant. I found the doubt. You know, all that self-pity I was mentioning, and just kind of, oh, poor me, I can't do it, that's a form of doubt. But I didn't have any doubt about the aspiration. And so that's what you want to look for is, what is your aspiration? What is it you're doing here? Why are you here? What are you practicing for? Remind yourself of your highest goal in life, if you will. Highest spiritual opportunity. Don't worry about whether you can reach it or not. Just know where it is you want to go. And then just take one step in that direction. Because really, our aspiration is its just a direction we're going. It's not a goal to be reached. And so any time we take one step in the direction of our aspiration, we have overcome doubt. And we can only overcome doubt one step at a time. At the end of our journey, we'll have that unshakable confidence. But not before. So we shouldn't look for it. But when we feel doubt, when we question whether I can do this, whether this is the practice for me, whether now is the time to be on retreat, speculatively reflecting about it will not advance your cause, will not fulfill your aspiration. Recognizing it, exercising some restraint, Reframing your understanding and knowing, I have to recognize this doubt. What does it feel like? 
Doubt feels awful. When you can really open to feel what doubt feels like, it feels like, what? Giddy emptiness. You know, it's quivering. Doubt, doubt is this quivering, kind of like, almost like fear. I don't know. I don't know which way to go. Like that. It's really unpleasant. It's hard to feel calm, stable, tranquil, steady. Impossible when you have doubt. On Maui, there's, a, there's a, an animal called a Jackson's chameleon. It's, really, it's, a, it's a perfect uh, live example of doubt. Now, this Jackson chameleon, they're about, I don't know, probably somewhere between six and eight inches long, and they have a tail that's about four to six inches long. And they're chameleons, so if they're on a green tree, they're green. If they're on a brown tree, they're brown. If they're on the ground, they're ground color. Anyway, they look prehistoric. You know, they got these two big things, big horns on their head like that, the males do. And, and they walk like this. They are so tentative in their walking, it's like they fake. They kind of like, they pretend they're going to take a step. And they go, it's like three, four, five times. And then they tentatively reach out one foot. You know, and then they, you know, then they go the other side, you know, three or four times, and then they reach that one. Then, then they got the hind legs to go too, you know. <laughs> they are the personification of doubt. It's like, I don't know, uh, maybe, uh, well, uh, uh, when your mind feels like that, just say, Jackson's doubt. Okay, anyway, again, Beginning to recognize it is, 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 recognize it is the first step. Usually, when doubt enters our mind and we think, I don't know if I can do this practice, we believe it. We believe that thought. We really believe, I don't, be, I don't know if I can do this practice. Gosh, it's hard to practice. It's hard to say, well, I'm going to practice anyway, and just take a note of it. Just observe it. Just feel it. Open to feel what it feels like in the body. Watch what it does to the mind. But that's the task. Open to receive it so that we can see. Learn about the nature of doubt and what it does to the mind, what it does to the body. So we have sloth and torpor, we have doubt. The next area or the next large category of defilement is aversion. Now aversion can manifest in in many, many different ways. There's striking out aversion. There's the striking out aversion that just gets angry at someone, raging at some condition, that's hatred towards something or someone. It's where the mind is just striking out at what is perceived to be unpleasant. Whether it's a politician or a person or an environmental condition or a government regulation or whatever. We just get angry and raging and striking out. There's another form of aversion, which is internalizing the, internalizing the inability to feel unpleasantness. We get depressed. We get frustrated. We get disappointed. We get despairing. We get irritated. We get impatient. These are all forms of aversion, which means we're unable to openly 
acknowledge and receive unpleasantness. And so we turn that within, the aversion. Don't like it, don't want to deal with it, don't want to, you know, and so we just get like that. Rather than striking out, we get striking in. Hmm, striking in. There's a third field of aversion, and it's in the pushing away, where we push away with fear. When we're afraid of something, it's not that we strike out at it, it's not that we internalize it, it's that we push it away. We push it out of our mind. You know, you gotta go, you gotta go see the boss about something. We kind of try to keep it, out, keep it out of our mind as long as you want. Or you're sitting outside the room waiting for the teacher to go in and do your check-in or interview. It's like, <laughs> it's like, you know, as, as Joseph said, it's like sitting in the waiting room of the dentist office. Mm-hmm. You know, you kind of, you don't want to think about it. You want to push it away. Or cynicism, criticism, judgment. These are forms of just kind of pushing away, not really opening to and allowing yourself to feel the unpleasantness of that situation. You know, some of us are, you know, I won't go there. Sorry. I was just thinking of local politics and, you know, international politics, and there's a lot to be cynical about. But what does it mean if you're cynical? I mean, it's hard to believe a lot of what you hear in the, in the political realm these days. And so many of us have turned away from national and international politics out of cynicism. What that means is we're unwilling and unable to open to the unpleasantness of it. But we believe it. We believe our cynicism. We believe that's a good strategy for dealing with something. But when we're cynical, or we're critical, or we're fearing, who's suffering? path of awakening is all about recognizing suffering, recognizing the causes of suffering, recognizing the end of suffering. If you're suffering in any way, this is the path, this is the practice. So the, the guidance for working with aversion is we shouldn't try to avoid unpleasant situations because they're going to come. They're going to come unpleasantness in the body, unpleasantness in the mind, unpleasantness in the environment, unpleasantness in our relationships. It's going to come. To try to, to spend your time trying to avoid unpleasantness, it's impossible. It's impossible. You can't strategize enough. You can't do enough to avoid it. Even if you knew how, cannot. Our challenge is, when unpleasantness arises, how can we not get entangled in the defilement of aversion? So we need to learn what aversion does to the mind, what it does to the body, how tight we get when we're averse. And how our mind strikes out, pushes away, numbs out, covers up, hides, avoids, dismisses, turns away from unpleasantness. So you know, when you open to aversion, 
you really are going to learn, you're going to have to learn how to open to unpleasantness, how to feel unpleasantness, mental unpleasantness. Somebody's doing something that you're angry about, you have to open to it. You know, really feel how unpleasant that is in your mind, rather than just get angry. I was in the monastery in Burma, and I was, I was, I was intent. I was sincere and intense in my practice. I was not, I didn't want to be bothered. But there was another Western monk there who was casual. And he liked to talk. He just loved to talk. And he loved to talk to me. (laughs) So we were in the same kind of dormitory. And every day, two or three times a day or more, he'd come out of his room, walk down the hall, stand at my door, just a screen door, and start talking. I could be sitting. (laughs) Steve, are you busy? (laughs) Hello, am I busy? Yes, I am. (laughs) And if I didn't respond, he didn't need to talk with me. He just needed to talk at me. I got so... I tried everything. I just got angry. Told him to go away. Don't come bother me. You know, he didn't care. He didn't care. He was not motivated by anger. It didn't move him at all. So I just ignored him. I was just seethingly frustrated ignore him. He still didn't leave. So I said, I reminded him, we're in the monastery. We're practicing noble silence. Noble silence, noble silence. eh? Okay. He didn't care. So then I said, okay. If you come, you can only talk for five minutes. He also didn't care. He just kept pestering me. You know, I kept being bothered by him. May you be happy elsewhere. May you be happy quiet. So I tried to do metta for him. Still didn't work. He still came. I was still upset. So then I just said, I'm just going to sit here and ignore him. Or I'm just going to stand here and ignore him. I couldn't. Then I said, okay. I guess, ultimately, I'm just going to have to open to it and feel it. You know, somebody's talking at you, feel it. It feels unpleasant for a while, and then you just feel it. It's not so bad. You don't have to engage them. You don't have to get... The defilement of aversion is much worse, much more unpleasant than feeling the unpleasantness of somebody talking at you. But until you open to it, until I opened to it and saw it for myself. I didn't know. I thought avoiding, minimizing, denying, getting angry, irritated was much better than having to listen to that guy. We should never underestimate the power of mindfulness to bring immediate relief. It's that willingness to open and feel. That's mindfulness. Just acknowledge, this is the way it is right now. This is the nature of aversion. Or this is the nature of unpleasantness, which conditions aversion if we're not careful. This is what it feels like. It, in the direct experience, it may be unpleasant. But in the dropping of all that Suffering, it's a relief. Never underestimate the power of mindfulness to bring immediate relief. 
Fourth category of hindrance, defilement, is restlessness. Restlessness is a mental state which, when acted out, is pacing, is frenetic activity, it's keeping busy, it's never managing to get to the hall to sit on time. Restlessness. The mind that has just got, you know, you're on retreat. My gosh, you might have to fill your water bottle and you've got to do a yogi job and even take a shower all in one day. My God, how, how are you going to have time to sit? You know, t- there's just so much to do. I've got to have a cup of tea. One in the morning, one in the afternoon. So if, okay. You know what? The wandering mind, the mind that just wanders around in thoughts, in plans, in fantasies, into the past, memories, dredging up your personal history to review once again, planning so many futures you'd have to live hundreds of lifetimes to live them all out. This is just the natural activity of the restless mind. This is the nature of restlessness. We all know that. We, we, we all have experienced years of restlessness. But do we really know what it's like, what it feels like in the body, in the mind? No, because we've mostly just acted it out. Just thinking, 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 thinking. Rather than be mindful of the restlessness. Now, lest you think that the wandering mind is the problem, the wandering mind is not the problem. Your aversion to it is. If we can see the restless mind, if we can recognize, oh, the mind is restless, it's just kind of going here and there, it's just running around like one of those speeded up time-lapse things. If we can see it, we don't have to get rid of it. We want to be careful, in fact, not to try to get rid of it. But in the careful observation of the wandering mind, we should take note. Are we thinking wholesome thoughts or unwholesome thoughts? Because it is in the careless, unwholesome wandering of the mind that we lay the seeds, we plant the seeds for future suffering. You know, just kind of aimless, desiring mind, just kind of wandering around in the future, imagining all the good things you'd like to do and have and become and get. You know, we all do that. Hours and hours and hours every day. You know, planning the next sitting, planning the next retreat, planning our future, our retirement, our career, whatever. It's just planning, 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 planning. Thinking that that's a good thing to do, like we're really going to do that. We're just planting seeds of desire, all unwholesome states of mind. Unwholesome states of mind planted in the mind stream sprout, bear fruit of unpleasantness. It's hard to be happy experiencing a lot of unpleasantness. So, we're not observing restlessness in order to get rid of it. We want to understand it. We want to understand this is what restlessness does to the mind, to the body. Because it's in the understanding, as I mentioned the other day, it's in the understanding of the way things are that we can be free. 
that we can be at ease, that we can be at peace. If we don't understand the restlessness of the mind, we're going to act it out. We're going to resist it. We're going to judge it. We're going to try to get rid of it. We're going to do anything except understand it. Thoughts are just thoughts. They're not your thoughts. They're just thoughts. It's just the activity of the mind. Don't make a big deal of it. Don't struggle with your thoughts. Just recognize, oh, thinking's happening. And is it wholesome or unwholesome? Sloth and torpor, doubt, all forms of aversion, restlessness. The last major category of defilement that I want to speak about is attachment. Attachment, desire, yearning, wanting, becoming, being identified with. These are all forms of the mind that is enmeshed in the object of its attention. Whether it's a person, a plan, a self-image, a thought, a belief, a sensation. We love to get entangled in pleasant experience. Do you ever make plans to suffer? Do you ever make plans that are for, to do something that's really unpleasant? I mean, sometimes we have to strategize how to do something, but mostly, when we imagine our future, it's always nice. And when we're making plans for it, What is attachment? Attachment is the identification with pleasure. We want pleasure. We like it. We want to indulge in it. We don't want to experience it mindfully. You know, I, I think I said this to my group the other day. Nothing like mindfulness to ruin a good meal. What's that mean? You know, you go through the lunch line, you see something you really like. What did you have for lunch today? I can't even remember. But you go through the lunch line, you see something you really like, and you, you take as much as you, you dare. You know, you don't want, you don't want to look too, mm, 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 or whatever. So you take as much as you dare, and you get there. And it's just like, you know, the body is just quivering to get that thing in the mouth. So, you know, it's just like. <laughs> and then you've got to be mindful. You know, just try to be aware of, you know, what are you eating? The, the, the preferred dish? or your thoughts. <laughs> Mostly we eat thoughts. Thoughts. Only rarely, only occasionally we get a strong flavor and we really open to and really taste it. But here you have the opportunity. Unless you have a yogi job that starts <laughs> soon after you get your meal, you can sit there for an hour To eat an apple, or a banana, or a cracker, or whatever. And really just see what it is that's so exciting about pleasure. There's just tremendous amount of desire in the mind, attachment in the mind. But recognizing it is the first step, opening to feel it, just not acting it out, 
and opening to feel it, knowing that this is desire, this is wanting, this is uh, seeking pleasure, emotional pleasure, physical pleasure, spiritual pleasure, social pleasure, whatever it is. As long as we focus on the object of our desire, we're caught. But if we turn our attention around to the feeling of desire, we can be free. The object of desire, it'll change throughout your lifetime. But the feeling of desire will be the same every time. Get familiar with this. Observe it. Come to understand and know what desire does to the mind, what desire does to the body, so that you can recognize it quickly and not get entangled in a desiring or attached relationship to the things and people of your life. These are the major defilements, the hindrances. This is how to work with them. Recognize them, exercise some restraint, Reframe your understanding. We can work with them. We can open to them. We can develop wisdom by observing them. Receive their nature and realize their impermanence. It is not you who removes the defilements. Wisdom does that job. It's the understanding this is the nature of the defilements. When you understand them, they go away. So let's sit for a minute and let the words quiet down. The purpose of practicing is to grow in wisdom. Growth in wisdom can only happen once we're able to recognize, understand, and transcend the defilements. In order to test your limits and to grow, you have to give yourself the opportunity to face the defilements. Without facing life's challenges, your mind will remain weak forever. Thank you for listening to the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.